Oh yeah, what's up everybody? Welcome to the Artist of Data Science Open Office Hours, or should I say the Artist of Data Science Happy Hour. I'm so happy you guys are all here. We got the we got the room filling up, people coming in from everywhere. Thank you guys so much for joining in today. I hope you guys are able to tune into the episode this week, release an episode with Donald Robertson. He's the author of How to Think Like a Roman Emperor and Stoicism and the Art of Happiness. Uh, one of my favorite interviews that I've done this year because I'm a huge fan of Donald Robertson's work. Um, so definitely check out that episode if you have not gotten a chance to. We got people coming into the chat and into the room. Thank you guys so much for swinging by. Before we get started, folks, I just want to take a second to call out that the largest protest in human history is happening right now in India. I'm not an economist. I don't know the details of all the bills that were passed there, but I do know that hundreds of thousands of poor farmers are exercising their right to a peaceful protest. They're being met by undue aggression and violence by the Indian government while being portrayed as terrorists by the Indian government. The vast majority of these people are my people, people from Punjab, and all they want is to exercise their right to be heard by their government. It's a peaceful protests and they're being met with violence and aggression. This is a violation against human rights. I just want to say that injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere and that I stand with the farmers. That being said, guys, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedules to come into the Artists Data Science Happy Hour. I'm so happy you guys are here. Welcome. Uh, so we got a lot of people in today. So thank you guys for coming. Who's up, man? Who, who would like to ask a question? All right. So how about a bunch of new faces here? So that's cool. We got Camille. We got Jake. Actually, yeah, I was going to say hi. Man, so many, so many new people, man. Um, how you guys doing? Good. Thanks for awesome. sponsoring. Hi, Harpreet. How hey, how's it going, man? Good, good. Hey, Harpreet, I have a question to, to kick it off. If, yeah, absolutely, man. Uh, you know, I'm, not, I'm an analyst. I'm not a data scientist yet, but I, I look at these um, – Donut charts that you see on the internet about the the, um, the daily breakdown of a data scientist, right? And like sixty percent of it is uh, data cleaning. So any data scientists that are on here, I'd like no matter how mundane, like what's your latest dirty data task you had to overcome, and kind of you know get into specific weeds, like if you're in Python or R or whatever, you know what did you do? What 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 kind of commands were you using to to clean up the mess you had to deal with? Yeah, I'd say like 60% of any project that you start out, the, that first chunk of time is definitely spent on that data cleaning aspect. So the biggest challenges that I've had to face is, first of all, people not knowing where to get the data that I need to do the job, right? Because um, you'll start in, 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 in a project and people are like, oh, we think we have data to get this, you know, project solved, but we just don't know where it is. And you, so you'll spend a lot of your time interviewing people, I guess, quote unquote, interviewing people, trying to figure out what they know about the data. And then once you do identify where the data is, you then have to figure out what the hell each column represents, right? So I found a lot of times that, um, you know, the the last couple of organizations I've been at um, don't necessarily have really thorough documentation in terms of data dictionaries. So that's always been a challenging task is, okay, first I need to figure out what data it is that I need to make progress against this problem statement. And then I need to figure out what these columns mean to give it some context. And then from there, it's just a matter of, okay, um, how do I parse through this data? How do I combine it in a meaningful way? Um, and that in itself can, you know, th that takes a huge 
amount of time. So I, I guess like I don't really spend 60 or 80% of my day actually cleaning data, but the any given project that I start working on, yeah, maybe about 50 to 60% of that is just data understanding and data preparation. Dave, what do you think? Oh, 50%, man, I envy you. <laughs> That's what I think. <laughs> yeah, if you, if you think of data management all up, acquiring data, understanding data, cleaning data, rinse and repeat until you get a significant significant enough data set to actually conduct your analyses. For me, the 60 to 80% figure, which has been quoted since the 90s, has been accurate for me all along. So it takes a lot. Um, and especially if you're, if you're lucky enough, I would say, in your analytics work to actually grab new data sources that are from maybe outside of the firewall of your organization, then the number really goes up after that. But that's also the fun part. You come up with a hypothesis and you say, hey, if I grab weather data, or whatever, I could maybe do something awesome and people go, go for it. And then you're grabbing weather data and you're cleaning it. Yeah, it's fun, but it's also a lot of work. Makiko, what do you, what do you say? How much of your time is spent cleaning data? And Ray, let us know for touching on your question. I know you're asking if, like tooling and, and stuff like that. Um, let I mean, us know. Get into specifics too. I mean, almost like uh, if you can, like a, a, an agile session, like what did you do this week? So if you were cleaning this week, like, you know, I had... <laughs> 3,000 states in a state field, and it was another mess, or, you know, whatever, something like that. I'd like to hear just some, like, real-world war stories of the kind of cleaning exercises people have had to go through. All right. Oh, I, I'm, I'm in one of those war trenches right now. Let's I'm, hear about I'm, I'm it. in it, man. <laughs> Let's hear about it. Tell us. Yeah, and I think, too, um, so I think the percent, so, what? okay, so I think the percent of data cleaning and the the extensiveness of data cleaning, I think really to some degree depends on like the maturity of like your company or organization or client that you're working with. So for example, like prior, so like currently I, I'm, I'm running a startup, uh, co-founding a startup, launching one uh, within the next like two, three months, right? And <laughs> uh, right, and so that's the thing, right? Like uh, money is a bit of a constraint and so we can't immediately go to like an AWS stack or a GCP stack, um, especially because we're dealing with data that um, first off like <laughs> uh, is like regulated. Um, there's some um, security uh, kind of concerns around it, not concerns around the data, but like in general security concerns about how we handle the pipelines. Um, and also things to like, there were things that I think I learned as a data scientist that um, are great when you're working on like independent research projects, but do not translate very well when you are talking about, you know, scalable, efficient pipelines that have great latency and um, all that other stuff, right? So right now in setting up the pipeline, like we're dealing with like a, a lot of like, for example, we get description fields that have just special characters all over the place. So the minute you try doing like a copy from into Postgres, like it just, you know, it just dies. Um, but like probably down the line, we'll eventually have to do things, for example, um, like there's cleaning the data to make it useful for modeling and analysis. And then there's also cleaning and uh, managing the data. So for example, you don't have bias that comes in, right? So the startup I work on is real estate, uh, like bias around uh, gender, race. Um, in the US especially, there's actually like a lot of uh, different sort of factors and characteristics and attributes that correlate with race, right? And when we're talking about real estate data, um, you know, it's something we just have to be very careful about where like, if we're recommending things to people, 
we want to make sure that those services or, or those kind of products that we're recommending are not being biased towards whether someone is male, female, whether they are like um, a gay or straight couple, right? Whether they're married or unmarried, you know, whether their uh, wealth is in equity versus cash, right? Like some of those things are kind of interesting, um, but they're, they're kinds of things that like, you know, when you're cleaning data, you do have to be aware of those. Right. So, but I think it, it does depend on like kind of like what organization or what kind of team you're working with. If they're like super sort of developed, they might already have analytics engineers. And so cleaning is just formatting it nicely. Uh, but if you're working like really bare metal, like in a more sort of bootstrap situation, um, I would say like cleaning is like cleaning and like munging is like 80%. Right. Like if you're, you're lucky if you get like 20%, it's like modeling and analysis. I would even add to that another issue is just dealing with the duplicates. Like, are they true duplicates or are they just look like duplicates? That's always an issue as well. Uh, Monica, how about you? Do you have any stories from the, uh, from the trenches War stories? Yeah, I, ha- I have a recent example um, actually. So it depends on how you're receiving the data. So hopefully you have access to, a database within the company that's already clean and already maintained and easy to get access to. But in some cases, uh, you have to, you don't have that. So you have to get reports that are coming from management. So whether that be an Excel file, a CSV file. And the thing with Excel sometimes, I'm sure Dave knows this uh, very well, is that it likes to manipulate your data behind the scenes without you knowing anything. <laughs> So one example, um, I recently got a data set that had some dates in it. And for some reason, um, I was working with a a client in Mexico and the U.S. has dates, uh, month, day, year, and everywhere else has the day, month, year. And for some reason, every other row was switching the formats. So there was no way that we were just like really trying to figure out how do we go around this? There's no way to really like catenate or string pull or anything like that. So uh, what we did to resolve that actually is we were able to pull the report in a TXT file and it just came out raw and all the dates were the same format. So that helped us there. But so Excel, it's a little tricky. Also, you have to watch out for those carriage returns. If you end up with one of those yes. inside yeah. of uh, every data frame, that can be quite messy. Uh, UTF encoding is also another thing that is a pain in the ass. Uh, Ray, hopefully that answered your question. Um, so I've got a great queue of questions here. I'm going to go down the list. We'll start with um, Vipul. Vipul, go ahead and meet yourself. Let us know what your question is. Then after Vipul, we'll go to Naresh and Jake. Hello, everyone. Um, so my so my main question was basically just to understand how to break break through into into the data science industry. I'm currently working in in product management with one of the global uh, human capital management firm, and um, so my my current profile and uh, revolves around. Uh, getting some requirements so so basically just just doing the product owner or product management work so it involves some sort of uh, analysis as well where we do some production analysis and the tools which i use is basically sql and uh, and then also if you want to know some trends uh, i i use power bi 
but what my interest uh, lies, uh, basically, I, I want to grow myself into data science and or proper data analysis field. So just want to get some understanding from 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 the experts in the call that should I follow the path of um, learning new tools or or should I just focus on uh, just the old ancient way, just learning the statistical learning or like learning new R language or non Python. <laughs> So the old ancient way is um, classics, right? I wouldn't call it old and ancient. I'd call it tried two principles that have withstood the test of time. Uh, okay. that, that being said, I would say you don't actually need to have a job in data science to do data science work. It sounds to me like you have a significant portion of your job responsibilities involved working with data. And there's no body really over your shoulder telling you, no, you can't use this methodology or no, you can't use this thing. You can use the tools that you want to learn to get the job done and deliver value for your organization. And nobody is really going to care that much, right? Tom, what do you think? Sorry for being slow there. I was typing an answer to someone. Um, no, I loved where you were going, Harpreet. And I think uh, it's an opportunity to do what Nick and I were talking about today on, on one chat, um, it's get to know your internal partners that are decision makers or your business counterparts. Basically, you're developing your internal customers and go and find out where they're hemorrhaging and find that perfect intersection between what you can do now with data and what their needs are and then just give them the most stupid, ridiculously simple visualization you can. It sounds like you already have skills in that area, which is awesome. And then build that up and then make that one of your first data science problems. It may not turn into that, but they'll start to see you as the guy that can bring data to answer questions. And then you look for opportunities to do some predictive analytics. But sometimes just telling the story well with data makes you a hero. So another thing, I've actually done this. I've done operations, program management. Like I love data and it's kind of like kind of where you are. I had data to play with. I could experiment with it. I could do what I would call minimal analytics. Um, and so I started talking to people within my company that were hiring the kind of jobs that I wanted to get into. And I asked them, what kind of skills are you looking for? What kind of projects are you working on? Is there anything that you need help with? Exactly what Tom was just saying. I got a job out of one of those by accident. So use your network, listen, go in with questions, but never be afraid to reach out and ask other people's opinion because... You may stumble on something. Thank you very much, Jennifer. Dave, you look like you dropped a great comment into the chat. Do you mind sharing that with us, please? Sure, why not? Uh, so I used to be a PM at Microsoft. Don't hate me because of that. Uh, so what I put in the chat was that product management is actually, in my opinion, an awesome place to start building your analytics portfolio because you have a ready-made business problem for you to use your analytics to improve, which is the product that you own. And I'll give a specific example that might not necessarily be intuitive. So I used to run a team that was in charge of all the BI and data warehousing assets and analytics assets for Microsoft's supply chain operation, building Xboxes and all that crap. And we implemented some telemetry on our SQL Server data warehouse. So we put in database audit specifications, which allowed us to track every single query that was issued against the data warehouse. And then we used that 
to do a couple things. One, we did some um, process mining to understand how people were using the data in terms of flows of queries as part of a sessionization exercise. We also were able to determine which tables were actually used very much so we could drop them, saving money from sand storage perspective and all kinds of things. So I'm just using that as an example. So all kinds of product management roles have an opportunity to use data and use analytics. And if you have access to event logs and telemetry, I just put this in the chat, you've got a goldmine opportunity because there are, I want to give you two words. If you're not familiar with this, you want to study it. Process mining. Good, good stuff, right? So you take your event log and it allows you to transform it into useful information around a customer's journey or a user's journey through your product. It's wildly awesome stuff. And I'll be quiet now. Thank you very much, everybody, for, yes. for, for that. So it, it sounds to me like the, the big takeaway here is the fact that if you want to start breaking into data science, you are positioned um, already to do so. It's just a matter of you just starting to use the methodology in your day-to-day work. Vipul, do you have any um, add-on questions to that or was that, was that good? Well, absolutely. Thank you so much, guys. Thank you. It, it actually clearly explains that uh, probably like in every way we can use some sort of analytics, but uh, as, as I think everyone has mentioned that it's product management and whole uh, sort of has that kind of uh, sort of a background where we can use analytics every day. So thank you so much for your guidance. All right, let's go to, I've got next in the queue, I've got Naresh. Naresh, uh, are you still here? Go for it. Yeah, I'm still here. Hey, Arpita. Hey, everybody who's joined. Um, yeah, my question is, uh, I'm trying to start working on the data portfolio. I just wanted to know, I've been digging some, uh, I've been digging uh, data sets, the easy data sets, but I, I, there are a whole bunch of data sets, but I couldn't figure out which ones. Uh, so my question is, does anybody know uh, the easiest data sets to start working on data portfolio? So you probably don't want the easiest data set to start working on data portfolio. You'd want the easiest data set for you to start just messing around with some of the methodology so you can get familiar with maybe how to use the scikit-learn API, use the pandas API. But ultimately, the data set that you use, it's not really that Okay, let me rephrase this. If you use the Titanic data set, MNES data set, uh, what is the, the, the breast cancer classification data set, those are probably not going to make for strong or interesting portfolio projects because they're cleaned up, they're ready for you to use, right? The type of portfolio you want to build out should be built around something that you are interested in. Right, so it's going to have to come from a, from a place of introspection. I think you need to sit back and really think about what kind of problems am I interested in solving, and then from there try to find the appropriate data to then make a, I guess, a, a, a statement or a progress against that problem statement. Hopefully, that makes sense. Um, I'd like to open it up and see what maybe Brandon has to say about that. Welcome back, by the way, Brandon. Hey, hey, everyone. Uh, one interesting presentation that I've seen recently, it came from a person within the company that I'm currently working at, and he wanted to get into data science. He brought, he has a tracking device that he uses when he goes on walks with these kids. And he found a way to get that data. And he just started collecting it for, I think so far it's only been a month, but he plans to collect it for longer. Then he just started making all these graphs about, you know, with random columns there. And a lot of the conclusions were, you know, obvious, right? It was something like, how many animals did I see as a function of the time of day or things like that. And I was like, okay, you know, there's, there's nothing groundbreaking here, but it showed that he had an initiative to find some data, real world data, if you will, uh, and then learned all the, the graphing, just like Harpreet, just like you had shown, right? Started to use um, Jupyter Notebooks and um, all the different plotting options. 
And I thought that was, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't use the other data sets that are available, but I just thought that was a creative way for somebody to break into the field and show their interest. And, and I can see the person's interest in the data set, right? Another one of your points, because hey, he just wanted, he was just curious. He's like, every day I take this walk and what if I just captured this data and look, looked at it? I think another important, not important, but another interesting project would be if you have Spotify, for example, if you can pull, you know, your last year's worth of Spotify listening data, right? From their API, they have a very robust API called Spotify and each track has a wide number of metrics associated with it. So if you can tie in weather data with your listening data and maybe come up with a project to see how does weather affect my listening behavior on Spotify? Do I tend to listen to more acoustic songs when it's raining outside or do I listen to more uh, upbeat songs, right? Something like that. Just something interesting along the lines of what Brandon was talking about. Um, hopefully that answers the question. I'm going to go ahead and move on to the next question. We've discussed projects and, and uh, data for projects in a number of other um, office hours. So I urge you to go ahead and look back onto those and um, you'll get a bunch of other ideas. Let's go to Jake now. Jake, how's it going? Is Jake still here? It looks like Jake might have disappeared and left. Jake or Jacob? whichever one you go by. All right, cool. Let's go to Akshay then. Akshay, how's it going? Yeah, hi. Yeah, so my question was quite similar to Vipul's question. So I just wanted to know, like, what should I do to get a first breakthrough in the data science field? Like, I am a graduate student right now, so looking for a full-time opportunities, and my previous experience was completely in software development. I have done a couple of projects in data science in my academic so I just wanted to know what should I keep in mind to get a first breakthrough in data science field. So I just wanted to have uh, some expert guidance. Yeah, definitely. I'll open this one up to Makiko. Looks like Makiko is having some audio issues. How about either uh, Tom or Dave? Okay, I'll go ahead and jump in. Um, so we talked about this in previous office hours and um, if you're on LinkedIn, you've seen it all over the place, right? So you have to have projects, you have to have projects and they have to be like really good quality projects. Got to be in GitHub. You got to have good code. It's got to be documented. You got to have nice documentation to communicate all the things that you can do, right? It's just not throw up a, a Python notebook and just say, Oh, there you go. I'm great. No, it's not going to work. You need to have a great project. Unfortunately, these days, I would argue that's not enough either. That's just table stakes. That just gets you on par with everybody else. So as I've talked about last time at Happy Hour, um, I'm a big fan of taking up the next level and start creating some content. Start doing some content marketing for yourself. To try and see if you can find some sort of virtual meetup where you can do a talk, where you can explain something so you can demonstrate your knowledge and your communication skills, create YouTube tutorials, I mean, all kinds of stuff. So you got to have the project, absolutely. But the portfolio may not be enough. How do you differentiate yourself? Take it to the next level with some content marketing. Because then that, what that does is that demonstrates your knowledge and it starts establishing what we call, us influencers call, authority. Ooh, authority. Monica, any other tips on how to break into data science? And then we'll uh, move on to the next question by Himashri. So go for it, Monica. Uh, yeah, so just... Be be curious, and I myself am a list. Um, I know other people like to be specialists, or maybe those T uh, 
I forget what it's called, but with the with the T where they're generalists, but they find one area and they go deep down into that. Um, but just learn all that you can. Be curious. Show that you are willing to learn and that you do know how to learn um, because once you get into a job, you kind of start at ground zero anyway because you need to start gaining that domain knowledge and understanding that particular business and all of that. So if they know that you have that curious mindset and that you are eager and willing to move your forward, those are really good soft skills to hone in on. Let's get uh, Makiko. She is back online and go for Makiko. What? does actually need to do to break into data science hey can you guys hear me now okay cool that's then this is my worst like terrible pair of speakers too um so this is for actually but this is also for the other questions that I, i'm seeing in the chat and before that about like how do you break into data science in general um so two things to kind of i think think about is number one so data science and machine learning it's we want to think of those as like meta skills not necessarily just like as a single sort of group of like functional roles. And I think where we're seeing, what we're going to see is that more and more like we're going to see, see like data science and machine learning skills to be required as part of jobs, but not, not necessarily like their own jobs on like by themselves. What do I mean by this? Right. So the way I like to kind of, you know, what I like to ask people is like, what, is the part in what what do you want to do like within data science and machine learning um what is the kind of work that you want to do because a lot of the roles are around three personas it's strategy and analytics you're working with you know internal business teams or you're working with clients help them leverage uh like data to drive their business or drive decisions you're either doing research so you're trying to figure out answers to kind of novel questions or uh, novel uses of existing technology, um, or you're doing the engineering side, right? Because essentially that's how you sort of deliver value at scale. Um, so if you're thinking about like, how do I break into data science? I think the first question is to ask yourself is like, what do you want to be doing, right? So if you're not already working as a data scientist, right? Um, why do you want what is the kind of work that you want to be doing that would be under the label of data science, right? And I think that's a little bit more important than the, than the title, right? It's like, do you want to be doing research? Do you want me doing more of the engineering side? Or do you want to be doing more of the like working with business partners and teams uh, to like make decisions? I mean, I've been through kind of those first two. I tried them, said I didn't like them. And so now I'm kind of moving more towards the engineering part. Um, but the other part to think about is where are you starting from? So the bigger the gap is between where you want to go and where you are currently, um, the more you're going to have to prove, either in the form of like projects, um, referrals, uh, Kaggle competitions, like whatever. So a lot of times it's just easier to start with like the track that is closest to your existing skill set. So if you have an experience, for example, in prog management, in working analytics, then I think the best sort of thing to do is just figure out, okay, like what are the where are the questions I can solve within that area, and then you figure out the skills you want to learn that go along with that. If you're starting from software development, it's a very similar thing. It's like what kind of problems you want to be solving, what kind of products you want to be delivering, and then where are the skills that you need to be doing to kind of go along with it. And that's like hopscotching is one way to kind of like ease your way into data science without like feeling like you're jumping off like the deep end into a pool. So I'd say for everyone who's like thinking about like, how do I break into data science? There isn't going to be one cut answer because your unique situation where it's like 
where are you coming from with your skills and experiences and also where are you going is, is going to be very unique to you. And so it's best to kind of figure out, well, how do I leverage what I already have to kind of take that, like those smaller steps forward, right? And what's the closest like milestone point to that? Thank you very much, Kiko. Tom, go for it. Yeah, real quick. Um, I get asked this question a lot, people reaching out to me on LinkedIn. And I, when Harpreet calls on me, I apologize. I was thinking deep in thought about something else. And Tom, damn it, Tom, why didn't you say that? Be, do, have. A lot of people get that switched around. And um, just be a data scientist always. Your current role doesn't define who you are. Always be a data scientist. Now, well, you ask, if you're a data scientist, what do you do? You do data science every chance you get. Once you have that mentality, you will eventually have the role of something like data scientist, this or that. Now, what do I mean? Um, literally, someone that's like a daughter to me now, <laughs> Manpreet Bhutraja, she took, she had to take a job. So she got a data engineering job and she came with me with her tail between her legs and said, Dad, I had to take a data engineering job. So what do you mean had to? I'm ecstatic for you. That's going to be great entry experience. And you'll be able to apply some data science skills to help you do better in that, that role. Well, it totally flipped her perspective. She started to realize, yeah, I'll know how to work with data better. I'll understand how to work with my data engineering counterparts. And then I think what Muziko was saying was super important. The field is so broad. And someone else was saying that in the comments. Don't, don't think you're going to get your dream job right away. Just keep doing your best work in every role you're in. But remember, are you a data scientist or not? Then do what data scientists do. Absolutely love that, Tom. Excellent advice. Um, I think people tend to overestimate how long a year is when you're looking at a career of 20 plus years. So if you have to get on the parallel track for a little while just to get adjacent to where you want to go, whatever, chalk it up. It's all good. Uh, next up, we got, uh, so just a heads up, Dave, I'm looking at the chat. People want you to go deep into process mining. We'll do that at the very end. Everybody stick around for that. For right now, let's get through the rest of the questions. Next up, we got a question from Himashri. Himashri, go for it. Uh, hi. So I was reading this article where uh, it said that the observed variables uh, need not be normal. It's just that um, the errors after modeling has to be normalized, has to be normal. And uh, if it is not normal, we cannot uh, draw a valid conclusion by hypothesis testing. But uh, as per my process, I used to always just uh, normalize the observed variables before starting and then uh, uh, check the errors also. So. Uh, it's kind of contradicting for me. So uh, should we normalize or uh, even if we don't normalize, how would that affect? So stop reading articles and read books instead or things from university websites. I think anybody can put out a article on Medium uh, and just write whatever the hell they want and people will look at it as if it is like the truth and it's not. You can easily find university websites and and. They're much more reputable sources. To answer your question, uh, you don't. In order for you to do a ANOVA or a Z test or a T test, it does not require you to normalize your variables prior to conducting the test. Um, you can do the test, and then you notice afterwards that maybe the error 
of whatever it is that you're testing is not normally distributed, that means that you're violating an assumption. So whatever conclusion you make from that test is probably not going to hold. So that's kind of what I think you're asking. Um, if anybody else would like to chime in or if anybody thinks that I said was completely wrong, let me know. Um, you just be careful, right? A lot of people will say, oh, you got 30. You got 30 observations. So under the central limit theorem, you can assume normality. Be careful about that, especially in the business world, because a lot of times the underlying assumption is that you have homogeneity of variance, which often isn't the case in business data. So I'm with Harpreet. Take a look at some books. And in particular, I've rediscovered econometrics for no other reason because econometricians have to deal with imperfect data and they've come up with a lot of techniques to work with it. And generally speaking, business data looks an awful lot like economic data. So that I would say, get a nice introductory book on econometrics and study it. Good idea. Or you can use process behavior charts, statistical process control, because they do not assume homogeneity or variance. They're wildly, wildly useful. Brandon, any thoughts on this? Yeah, it seems like a kind of a specific question. Uh, generally, as I go through my day-to-day work, I, I always think about this is my problem and then what should I do? And if it comes to me that, yeah, I think what I need to do is normalize this for this reason, then I'll do it then. So I think without having the whole context around and what the goals are and what the data looks like, it's kind of hard to give a general answer. Yeah. Yeah. I guess like a, a, for this question, Himashri, if all you're concerned about is I'm trying to do a hypothesis test, whether that is ANOVA or T-test or Z-test, and you're questioning whether or not you need to normalize your data before conducting your test, the answer is no. You do not need to do that. Um, Do you need to then look at the distribution of your errors afterwards? And this is specific to like, you know, linear regression. Um, Then yeah, look at the distribution of your errors. And if you notice that they are not IID normally distributed, zero, one, right? Then you've um, violated your assumptions and whatever results you get is going to be garbage, essentially. Does that answer your question? Yes, yeah, uh, I got it. Thanks. Yeah, any other input on that? If anybody would like to, let me know. All right, cool. So Christian had a question, but I think he left... Um, hopefully, Christian, you got your question answered in the chat. Um, don't worry, everybody. I will post the chat uh, on the um, show notes as well. So we'll be able to to keep up with that. Next up is Faraz. Hi, everyone. Can you hear me? Yeah. Loud and clear. Uh, this is my first happy hour. I'm quite excited about it. Um, I have a question. So this is pertaining to COVID and uh, situations like this. So it's about how does one account for rare events like COVID into predictive modeling? Uh, do you just give a few months of data or come up with a correction factor for your models? This is specifically for time series models? Uh, yes. Even models which account for behavior of, uh, of customers. Like for example, I'm looking at what sort of products I'm selling and looking at past data. Now, if I would look back standing in December, looking back last three years, the so last eight to 10 months, the data is confounded because of COVID, right? Now, how do I account for such factors? Uh, it's, it's a quite generic question because it does apply to different scenarios of more, uh, predictive modeling. So just want to get your thoughts uh, on that. Yeah, I don't have an answer for that one. So I'm going to throw that right back out there to uh, people out there who are far smarter than I am. So either... I, I can speak to this one. This is Ben. Oh, Ben. Hey, how you doing? Hey, I'm in the car. Um, So I love this question, by the way. So one of the things we talk about is you actually can't anticipate something like COVID coming. So think about the models you built pre-March. 
they were all invalid as soon as March hit, if you're doing logistics or something that's, you know, where COVID impacts your model. And so one of the things we talk a lot about is you need to be able to catch your model going off the rails. So we talk about feature drift, prediction distributions, what are the alarms in place? How can you stop your models from doing bad things like sending an infinite toilet paper request or something where you're like, oh crap, I never thought this would happen. <laughs> so you want checks and balances in place, but then when the crap hits the wall and you've got pressure to retrain the model or redeploy, a lot of people were unable to redeploy models in March because they had to wait to get enough data. One of the tricks you can do if you've got a lot of urgency to, to, to do something quickly is coming for the financial world, they'll do exponentially weighted um, weights on their observations. So you put a lot, so I still train on a big data set, maybe a few months, but I'm going to put some exponentially weighted factors on the most recent data to really power my residuals through. Um, that's one of the ways you can get around sparse data. Because if you're dealing with like two weeks of data in March, you're kind of screwed that you could still take advantage of that. So that's a trick, but you can't predict every, every regime change. So that's my, my two cents. That is solid gold, man. I appreciate that. Uh, anybody else um, have any thoughts on how to deal with this? One thing you can't, oh, please go, go ahead, David. No, you oh. go, buddy. Okay. One thing you can do is you can engineer specific features. So for example, um, if you're using sort of tree-based, type of algorithm like XGBoost or something like that, you can literally put in a, um, a feature that says essentially this is a COVID time period feature. And sometimes what that will do is that will then trick the, the, um, the boosted trees to say, look, I'm getting all this shit wrong. So I'm going to go ahead and focus a bunch of extra trees in the, in the boosted ensemble to focus just on that. And you can get some temporary uplift. Now, another thing you can do, and this is often not very popular, is just break the truth to people to be like, I can't really do anything right now. I'm sorry. The world is different now and I don't have any data and therefore I can't actually improve the model. So we might have to do something old fashioned, like actually use like a BI dashboard for the time being until we get enough data. I, I really love these previous two answers. Um, one thing that occurs to me is, um, and I'm glad Tim's out there because we've done this presentation together before. Think through your machine, lo uh, through your machine modeling pipeline and just start working it. In other words, you got to become friends with your features first and uh, look at your distributions. Look, you, you may not even know what features you're going to use it yet. You may, not, you may have several models uh, that are different labels to help deal with the issue at hand. But if you just start going through the methodology, going through the pipeline, looking at potential features and looking at some unsupervised learning, just some... some uh, uh, K-means and K-nurse neighbor, stuff like that. Look at clustering, basically. Then just start marching through it. After a while, you start to get a feel. Well, I can still look for collinearity. I can look for things doing the same job here. Um, but over time, you might get a feel for, oh, well, I'll just throw this out there. The nice thing about throwing something out there is it's probably going to get shot down, but at least it's like a Thomas, Thomas Edison mentality then. It's like, okay, that's not hitting any vibes, but you're not shooting in the dark either. You have, a, you have a good clue about what's important. And just by throwing out, you can ask for feedback right away. It really kind of comes back to the thing we were talking about earlier of if you have a spirit of just trying to meet the need and, and you do micro releases and you put something simple out first, say, this is half faith, but I want feedback so I can do better. Man, the community, this community especially, will rally around you. Man, those were such great responses. Um, 
definitely learned a lot from that. Brandon, I see you're unmuted there. Do you want to jump in? Yeah, I'll just say we did something like this earlier in my career around 2010 when that you know, was two years after the financial crisis and we're trying to build these risk models to see who should get a credit card. So we're looking at this past few years in data and say, uh, how much of this is valid? Then we had, like nobody knows, right? So we just had to make our own best guesses to say, okay, there's going to be some sampling that we do. Uh, we're going to have to select certain months that are good versus others. Well, at the same time, accounting for the seasonality of things, right? So you're like, okay, uh, December is a special month in terms of if people like get credit cards and what ends up happening to that credit card. Uh, okay, so let's let's just choose some. And, and it was just, you know, I, I kind of hate to say, cringe to say this, but it, it wasn't data. It wasn't based on data. It was just a couple of us are sitting around thinking, uh, we want one December, let's do that, but let's not pick two Decembers. We want this month. We don't want this month because like the stock market did something crazy in this month or the economy did something crazy. We probably want two of these months. These look normal. And then uh, we, we use that as our training set. And then the, the weighting, as Ben had mentioned too, right? We did some weighting on later stuff and we're like, okay, I think this is what we can do now. And from then on, it's, it's that uh, monitoring, right? It's like, okay, I think this will hold us down for a few months maybe. We probably have to train more often than we would in the past because things are changing so much. And then you just keep monitoring that and eventually you'll get to some normal. But so as you can see from my comment, right, there's at what point are you normal? Because didn't, you know, we had some extraordinary event back then. We have an extraordinary event today. So I guess that's, I, I don't know. All my answers always come down to like an educated guess, right? Yeah, do what it, you think is most reasonable. It depends so much on so many things. And I think the selection criteria for your data that you decide to actually model is definitely very important. Mikiko, uh, go for it. I see you're unmuted. Yeah. So this is where it really pays to have um, a good relationship with your business partners um, and to <laughs> feel like everyone who everyone's smiling, who uh, understands what that means. Right. Um, so like, for example, it could be an extraordinary black swan event. It could also be that you're opening up into a new market and you have to give them like pricing assumptions and you could do like lookalike analysis. So this happened when I was working over at the solar company on the finance team and we were entering into like five or six new markets of which, you know, not to go too much into the solar sort of specific parts of the business, but the pricings were different. The sort of regulatory incentives were different. Um, even the sort of uh, composition Right. So whether it's a black swan event, whether it's like a new market or a new product into an existing market, um, having that relationship with your business partner is really important because it essentially like, for example, if they're in sales, right, like they are very much so sort of tied to like, what is my quota in target and commissions? You're telling me I'm not going to hit it. Why? Right. And if you already have an antagonistic relationship with them, they're just not going to believe anything you say anyway. Right. And they're just going to be like, oh, I can't work with this analyst. Right. Um, you know, but if you do have a good relationship with them, if you can sort of communicate um, respectfully and also sort of like do a give and take sometimes like things like, for example, oh, we're not hitting our numbers because of COVID. Um, they're going to be a lot more open to it. Um, and it also still comes down to the fact that like forecasting is still kind of like a human art. It's a human business. Right. So when you say forecasting to a statistician, I think a lot of times they think time series analysis. When you say forecasting to a business partner, a lot of times they think, oh, this is going to be like this artifact that I work on with the data team where they will, you know, uh, include like assumptions or like, for example, we know this product is going to hit the market earlier, 
right? So that's something to kind of like really think about is, are you trying to account for it, you know, in your model, just, you know, just to like understand where things are going or how far off were you? Or do you need to include it because you're giving sort of um, strategy and decision making advice to a business partner who has these kind of like KPIs that they are sort of um, accountable to? Right. And now those two things will play slightly different. So that's just kind of, I think, a good thing to think about. Thank you very much, Kiko. That's awesome, awesome advice from everyone there. Um, Greg, I'm curious, how are you guys handling this at Amazon? So uh, simply there's there's this massive team uh, based on, uh, you know, their expert in econometrics and they're uh, pulling all sorts of uh, data from a, uh, raw materials perspective, and um, I can't speak too much about it, but all I can tell you is, um, say, for example, if you are um, reselling products that are based on um, copper as a raw material, um, how can you go back and track the impact on copper that might go up or significantly down in terms of price or demand to predict what the finished goods will do. So knowing when those triggers happen for the raw materials will help you position your modeling for the finished goods a little bit earlier where you can capture some spikes in demand way sooner than being a reactive uh, company. So uh, there's a lot of analysis being done where we go beyond just the finished good and go uh, up to even the uh, um, raw materials upstream to catch to capture some spikes. Thank you very much, Greg. Pras, uh, did that, that hit your uh, question? Absolutely. Uh, I love the perspective. Thank you so much, everyone. Right on, man. Thanks for asking. Next up, we got Eric. Hey, so this is kind of a explain it like I'm five question. So I am trying to understand the kind of different degrees of deployment, whether it's a model or an app or whatever, right? Because it's like at some point, you know, somebody's putting something just up on GitHub so you can come and see it or so you can clone it and work on it yourself. Uh, Then there's somebody who's putting up who's making a interactive dashboard, something like, you know, that's something I've been thinking about doing. And then they're throwing it up on a website like Heroku or something like that. And then you have, you know, something cloud-based and I just don't exactly understand how those are all similar and how they're all very different from one another. And I'm not talking about like, you know, enterprise scale stuff, like that's totally foreign to me and not really that useful right now, but just kind of as it's like kind of near what might be within my, my world. I just would like some explanation of those different things. Definitely. I think this would be a great question for, for Ben. Ben, if you're still around. Yeah, I'm here. Can you hear me? Yeah. 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 I love this question. So I think, think of it as a dial from experimental to applied and experimental. It really doesn't matter what you're doing. Like if you're doing a notebook and a one-off and GitHub and it, if it runs on this version or doesn't, like I'm going to throw TensorFlow under the bus early on TensorFlow 1.0 
Google would post blogs that wouldn't run. Like literally within a few weeks, you would run the code and it wouldn't run. Very, very buggy. Some of these AI software packages had a lot of bugs early on. Um, and then when you go to apply, you actually run into things like user experience, uh, things that are outside of the machine learning world that would fall into the app design space. But in the machine learning world, the thing with teeth, the thing that keeps people up at night, the nightmare, the skeleton in the closet is service level agreements and customer experience. And so with that, with service level agreements, imagine deploying a model where you actually are on, sorry, I got a kid interact with me. Um, So with service level agreements, you actually sign contracts where you will be sued if your API goes down. So there are clawbacks. So, so literally if a region of Amazon goes down, it doesn't matter that Virginia went down. It's actually your fault and you'll be sued. And so a lot of these model deployments, we actually have to have, triple redundancies in place. So it brings the engineering mindset, um, kind of a sloppy answer, but I like the scale of zero all the way to 10 being applied. It brings a level of sophistication that sometimes requires teams to support. Eric, did that answer your question? That's a little bit of a follow-up slash clarifying thing. So we see, like I was looking at this, this guy, Sean Sullivan on LinkedIn. He, so he's got a project, right? It's a dashboard made with uh, Streamlit and hosted on just a website, right? What is the difference between like this static, it's, it's a static dashboard. I think it's pulled from a static data set as opposed to, and then like, I'm really trying to figure out what the heck a cloud deployed model or whatever looks like. And pra- like practically, like when have I seen one of those and just not recognized it because I'm the customer and I don't have to know that or something like that. Ben, do you want to tackle that one? My audio glitched out. I don't know if I, um, the, the quick thing I was going to say there is for models that get deployed, we care about cost. Um, so cost can fall into an instance that's always on or think of these serverless instances like lambdas where they're fleeting. And so for people that do very high volume inference, so with our startup, we were doing a hundred million inferences per month and we had to run on lambdas because the cloud costs would have killed our startup, would have been tens of thousands of dollars a month in always on instances to support where lambdas was really, really powerful for just existing for a second to, to fulfill the prediction. Um, that probably again, doesn't answer your question directly, but there's, I feel like as soon as you go applied, all of the, all of the terrors of running a business come after you. What is the cost? What are the contracts? What are the agreements? Whose fault is it? If the model's not working, it's always your fault. I'd reckon that the models at like Amazon, the recommendation engines that are running when you're on their website, that's probably all in the cloud. Likewise for like Netflix movie recommendations, things like that. Um, so hopefully that was, that was clarifying. Yeah, that helps. Thanks. Awesome. So can I take a stab at it just for, yeah, just yeah for absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Go for it. All right. All right, Eric, are you familiar with Python at all? Oh yeah, of course. That's too bad. Okay. Um, joking. joking. I know just R joking, too. People. Just joking. Very crude terms. If I understand your question correctly, imagine if you will, that you're a developer and you're working on your local laptop and you create a model using scikit-learn or something like that, you could literally save off that object as a pickle file, right? That's literally the binary representation of that model being trained and you can move it around. So imagine if you will, you uploading it to the cloud and there's some sort of service. And what it does is essentially it loads up the pickle file and it caches it in memory for you. So it's constantly ready to be hit from low latency for low latency calls. That's, conceptually how most of these types of machine learning pipelines work from the major cloud providers, like for example, Azure Machine Learning, which is the one I'm most familiar with. Literally, that's what, basically what happens. 
you create this workflow and it executes. And in the end, there's some sort of binary representation of your model. And of course, they save it off to disk for permanency, but then they also load it up in memory and they cache it so that anytime it needs to be called, it can be called. And from you as the customer, you'll never know whether that's like an on-premise server hosting it or it's some VM or some service in one of these cloud providers. And I don't know if that exactly answered your question, but I thought that's kind of what you were asking. Yeah, it kind of gets closer to where where I can actually put my hands as opposed to in some things that are just really high upscaled, you know. Dave resurfaced some scar tissue from deployment day. So the other thing too is what version of the model are you running? So as soon as you throw something on the cloud, there's this idea of constantly retraining different versions. And so that version management is an issue you have to take on as well, besides just having one model. Yeah. And the SLA thing that Ben mentioned is immense because this is a true story, by the way. Uh, when I was working at the Evil Empire, somebody wanted us to give them four nines. And Azure itself was only three nines at that point. So how do you make that work? <laughs> Eric, pickles in the sky. That is your answer. There was only one problem with Dave's answer. He he tried to bring up the R Python war foul. Python's for products. R's for research. Yes. Oh, there you go. Damn, I, I deserve uh, all that. You I'm went sorry. there. Whatever. I deserve whatever. it. I deserve. Guys, it's it's the holiday season, man. Let's let's be friends. Let's all just be friends. All right. So next up, we got Abe. Is Abe still in the building? All right, so looks like Abe and Jake bounced out, but I was able to find their questions. Jake's question is really cool, um, so I'd, I'd like to open this up to to anyone in in the uh, in the room right now. His main question is, "What's the most rewarding part about being a data scientist? Why are people going into this field?" Um, I'll kick it off by saying that I just love solving problems. Like that's the reason I got into data science. I just love really challenging problems um, that force me to learn new things. Um, so that's the most rewarding part for me. It's just solving interesting, fun, challenging problems and forcing myself to just have to learn and grow and become better every single day. Um, I don't think there's many careers out there that are like that. Uh, but then again, I haven't had many other careers except like actuary and biostatistician. And even in those roles, I felt a bit stagnant. Um, so data science is, is definitely um, pushes me to, to become better. Um, why do you guys love being data scientists? Whoever wants to open it up. Mark, what do you love be, about being a data scientist? Uh, this Mark? <laughs> yes, yes. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, I mean, I think the big reason why I pushed into being into, into data science, so my background is healthcare, and I just saw the writing on the wall where I'm like, you know, a lot of this big change in our system is going to be happening through data. And I felt like uh, communities I care about, you know, underrepresented communities weren't represented in that data set. So I wanted to get ahead of this disparity and see what I can do for that. And so I, it's a very mission-driven thing. I work on products that have, you know, value. Um, I'm not in healthcare right now, but I build AI, AI products to help people be happier in their jobs, and which is also tied to, to well-being. And so similar to you, um, I'm constantly learning every day, but it's a nice bridge between coding and research and stats, but also like business problems and talking to people and being very interdisciplinary. So um, it's honestly a really rewarding career and it's constantly like mentally challenging. And I think the scary part is that there's so much to learn. I can't learn at all, but that's also like the best part is like I get to new, learn something new every single day. Monica, what do you love about being a data scientist? 
uh, continuous learning, obviously, that's, that's my jam. I just love learning new things every day. Um, and to, to your point, those people out there that wanted to become detectives but couldn't get into the field, you can put on your data detective hat and solve some business problems. I really enjoy helping others. So if I can help others solve business problems or helping others kind of learn how to learn, uh, that's, that's really what I like is what's rewarding to me. Tom, what do you love about being a data scientist? So I started out in, uh, oh gosh, this so I'm older than dirt, but um, I, uh, I got really passionate about multi-physical system modeling and design with control system stuff built in. And there was a point in my career where, where I was in my heyday at that, and it just all went away because of corporate stuff. And I found myself in a role, and uh, I just magically migrated into data, started doing more and more data. I think I started saying dashboards before it was a thing. And I was actually studying data science techniques before we even called it data science. But it was a way to stay alive because I'm just addicted to predictive analytics and making the data flow and doing anything where data tells the story. So it was just my way of survival. And then just imagine my thrill when all of a sudden it became the sexiest thing you could do. And I said, are y'all just now figuring this out? Hell yeah, it's the sexiest damn thing to do. Mikiko, what do you love about being a data scientist? So it, it, funny thing is I didn't, I didn't start out loving it, right? Um, so there's my favorite book. It's So Good They Can't Ignore You by Cal Newport. He's like my, my professional crush, I guess, right? Um, but when, when I graduated college, my parents wanted me to become a doctor, right? It's the, the tiger parent dream, right? Doctor, lawyer, engineer, right? the Trinity uh, in finance someplace, right? Um, you know, so I kind of had to figure out what I could even be good at. And the thing that, so the thing that I'm very appreciative of is like, I feel like data science and tech, we, there's a lot of problems for sure, right? Around like sexism and racism and, and so many problems in tech. But I feel like for me, it's been the closest path to like the American dream, you know, where my, my mom immigrated and, you know, I'm trying to like, you know, sort of live the American dream as her child. Um, and it's one of these careers where it really is more dependent on like your personal initiative, you know, like how dedicated you are to learning, how willing you are to pick up skills and apply them. And it's really not like an age or gender or anything thing, right? It's just like you as an individual, like, are you willing to dedicate yourself to number one, kind of always feeling stupid. Um, number two, to not really being the smartest person in the room. Um, I, I regularly feel dumb, uh, especially when I have to do daily standups now. And I'm like, this is the progress we made with m my code, it, you know? Um, but if you're willing to kind of dedicate to yourself to that and also to like help people and learn from others, like, I don't know if there's any other, and I did, work different jobs, right? I don't know if there's any other job where I would have met so many sort of smart people who have kind of like bootstrapped themselves um, to really applying the like these skills to do really cool things. Yeah. And so for me, it's still kind of like, it's, yeah, I'm very appreciative. It's a very emotional journey, but it's also something that is like, I can kind of connect with because I can always, I know like, I just need to learn the skill or like solve the problem. And it's, it's always there. It doesn't, it's not dependent on like, my gender or my age or my looks or my family's wealth, which is very, very <laughs> broke. <laughs> um, all those things, you know, even education, 
you'll sometimes get people that like kind of go like, eh, on like, oh, you're not Stanford, you're not Harvard, you're not like whatever. Um, but I think there's fewer and fewer of them, to be honest, which is great. California State University and the University of California system right here, baby. That's what it's all about. Um, so I, I, being an immigrant myself of Indian heritage, like the door, the doctor, lawyer, engineer, Trinity, uh, definitely can resonate with that. But I think that lawyer has fallen out of favor and it's now doctor lawyer data scientist if if uh if you know if, if i can say so i'd love to hear what brandon and dave love about being data scientists and then after that i'll open the floor to uh questions that i might have missed i've been going through the chat and i think i've gotten everyone's question but if, if i've missed it uh we'll get to it right after we hear about what uh, uh brandon and then dave have to say yeah i didn't I, i'm pretty surprised at a lot of the answers that we've got. I didn't know it was going to get so personal. But uh, for, for me, I, I like at this stage of my career, I like working in teams and leading teams. One of the most rewarding parts of my job now is just mentoring the people who are who are working for me and getting them, getting them through like from the school style data science they learned to, well, here's how it works in real life. Uh, and then also, uh, like many others, I like uh, affecting people's lives. You know, I, some people come from, uh, you know, more modest backgrounds. And I'm thinking, man, if, if I can teach this person these skills, then this person can really make a big difference for their family and for themselves. So I like that part. I also like working with uh, other teams. So now uh, I'm in a state where I don't do everything anymore. So if I need something from a data perspective, I, I work with the data engineer. If I need uh, deployment and such, I work with the software engineer. And then um, when it comes to how is this going to affect the business, I work with uh, like a business owner. Well, this is, I'm just using like agile terms, but uh, I, I work with the business owner. So I actually don't have to do everything now. And my role now is more like the glue. So I'm the one person who glues everything else together. Uh, everyone does their special parts. Uh, and, and I like that kind of a role a lot because I'm getting to see different things that are happening across my team and then drive them together to to get to everyone's collective goal, which is, you know, our KPIs and such. Uh, one last thing I'll say is I also like the organizational impact that it has. So depending on the situation you're in, for me, when I came in, executives thought like, oh, we have all this data, do something with it. And then the first thing you learn is that, yeah, all this data is like a big mess. Uh, so then it's like, okay, we need these people who are entering into the system. We need them to enter it more consistently because the different teams are entering it differently. And now I can't build a model because everyone's doing things differently. And I have to, preach about like data as fuel and the, the need for clean data and how what you were doing before works if the audience is another person, but now the audience is a machine and, a, and an algorithm. So you have to do things differently now. And that, that takes a long time. And some people won't even buy into that at all. And half of the people will think like what you're doing, you know, is it going to work and your prototype sucks, which it is because it's your prototype. Uh, so that's all challenges. And just working through all that uh, is rewarding for me. Dave, let's hear what you love about being a data scientist. And I'm sorry, I have camera on bias. I keep forgetting that Ben is here because I don't see him on camera. Ben, after Dave, let's hear what you love about being a data scientist. So I won't say that I'm as old as dirt, but I'm rapidly approaching the age of mud. So like Tom, I've done a number of things in my career. So I think this is a really important question because, for example, some people want to get into data science because they think it's a lucrative career path. Well, actually, you can make more money as a data engineer and even more money as a software engineer, and you're still solving problems, you're still using your creativity, you're still doing a bunch of stuff. Because I used to be a software engineer back in the day, so that's not it. 
So the reason why I like being a data scientist is, or an analytics professional, as I typically refer to myself these days, is actually what really gets me excited is affecting the course of the business, more so than writing a cool algorithm, more so than training a model, more so than watching my cross-validation go, yay, I've got great generalization estimates. Awesome. No, that's all cool. Don't get me wrong. The geek in me loves that. However, the thing I really, really like is when an executive comes to me and says, Dave, we've got a new product. How should we price this? And then I use data and I influence the strategy and how things are going to happen at the business. That's what I really enjoy nowadays. And five years ago, I probably wouldn't have given that answer. So that's another reason why I like being in analytics. Thank you very much, Dave. Ben? Thanks. <laughs> I, I love this question. So I'm a, my dad's a doctor, my mom's a lawyer, and I was a homeless hippie prophet or whatever. You, I lived in the woods and was figuring life out. I fell in love with high-performance computing, so I'm a nerd there. But I feel like data science is really magic. Like just, it's almost like Harry Potter stuff. So the stuff that we can do today would have been considered impossible five or 10 years ago. And I just love that about the, about the field because it's a blank slate. So think of a creative project you want to work on. It's not hard for people to come up with a lot of really good ideas that have never been done ever. And, and so I think that's why this field is so exciting because the impossible is redefined every couple of years and it, it just blows my mind. And, and then the good that you can offer to people, it's every discipline needs this. So whether you love philosophy, science, engineering, it doesn't, or if you came from law school, it doesn't, you can, you can attach this to anything you love and improve it. So yeah, super exciting field, super rewarding. The homeless hippie prophet has spoken. All right. So question now from, I think it's Dider or D-Day. All right. So his question might've been answered already because many people asked this question in this office hour already, uh, but go for it anyways, man. Hi, everybody. Thanks so much for, can you guys hear me? Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It's uh, my first time. I got invited by Eric, so I'm really happy to be here. And um, I know some people have already covered the question, but I kind of just, um, I was, uh, I'm coming from the military. I was a maintenance engineer for the past five years and uh, just recently got out uh, looking to transition to data science. And and uh, I'm specifically interested in being like a data science in, uh, in the financial industry, like investment banking and kind of finance stuff. So I just kind of wanted to get um, some um, some advice on what I should go. Like I really haven't done that. I, I did something when I was still in university, but I haven't done that much. I didn't do that much data analysis in the military. So I just kind of wanted to get the advice. Should I like think about maybe going to school for one year master's program? Should I try to find some online courses to focus on? I guess just trying to get some advice or where to, where to go from here and how to start. Thank you. So in terms of the master's program, like that, I don't think you really need a master's to, to get into data science. And you know, I realize that I've got master's degrees and I'm, I'm saying this, but I'm curious, like, what is your, like, status in the U.S.? Like, are you already a citizen? Or do you need to go to school in order to stay in in the states? Um, is anything no, like I'm, that? Um, yeah, I'm, I'm already, I'm already a citizen and everything. Okay, yeah. well, a lot of the the resources are are free online, right? You just need to make a roadmap for yourself to figure out what skills you need to pick up, and um, I mean that that stuff is is covered widely. Um, in a lot of places, but I'm, I'll turn this back into uh, to, to the audience there. But just to specifically address your question about, uh, I believe you're saying you're interested in, in using data science, machine learning in like the finance sector or, yes. or something like yeah. that. A yeah. great book that I would recommend um, by St- 
Steven Jensen. Uh, he wrote a book called Machine Learning for Algorithmic Trading. And he has a very, very robust GitHub um, on, I mean, very robust repository on GitHub, which is essentially the entire book outlined. So I point you to yeah. that resource to really understand how to use machine learning within that context. Um, but for this question, I'll flip it back to uh, whoever wants to tackle this one. Go for it. Okay, I'll go. I Sorry, I was typing too. I put a link to the book that... Um, Harpreet just mentioned in the chat. And then, Dieter, I just sent you uh, a biblical message that I copied and pasted that I send yeah. to people that ask me for starter help. But yeah. in the long run, big things. Uh, if This is an ultrathon lifestyle. If you don't like continuous learning, uh, you need to find another field. <laughs> just being yeah. honest there. And then uh, it's, it's going to take a while, so pace yourself, but keep moving and, and keep your mind fresh because... You have to have a sharp mind and a, a tired mind is not sharp. So sometimes it takes time to get into study shape, if you know what I mean. Uh, there'll be times where you can work eight hours and you got to make yourself take a break. There'll be yeah. times you can't focus more than 10 minutes because it's super hard new material. But the other thing is what was said um, many times already in this, in this office hours is don't be afraid to just start doing data science and Share on LinkedIn posts what you're learning and how it's exciting. Um, just start there. Uh, start writing blogs when you can. Start building up better and better GitHub repos. I love Dave's answer earlier, but I think it's okay to recreate just an SK Learn practice data set. Just do it really good. Show exceptionally good visualizations along the pipeline and, and show that you tried different models and what the, how they compared. Uh, just showing... That helps new people and you can direct people to that. And that's, uh, you can, what I'm saying is the real point that David Langer was making earlier is don't just do another SK Learn GitHub repo. Do one that helps everyone that much better. And then other things you'll see. I'm going to be quiet so we can hear. From you. Thanks, Tom. Give a very short answer. Don't do like me in learn econometrics, study statistics, handle that and you're going to be fine. All right. Thank you. Thanks, Greg. Monica, go for it. I just wanted to add to Tom's point. It's really good um, that you have a path that you're going forward in relation to that you are interested in the financial field. So with all of the advice that everyone already said, um, I would add to focus on something in the financial field when you're working on those projects and learning something. That way you do build that background that's relatable to what you want to get into. Yeah. Thanks, Monica. I appreciate it. And uh, thanks, everybody. Was that uh, helpful, Dieter? Um, Am yes. I saying your name right? How do you say your name? Uh, I, actually, I actually go by Didi. Didi? All right, cool. Yes. All right, yeah. So uh, hopefully that, that helped you out there, man. So um, Yeah, awesome. definitely. Thanks very much. Awesome. Uh, so got a question in the chat here from Evangelos, uh, but go ahead, Evangelos, uh, where are you at? Unmute yourself and, and uh, first let me know how that, how that wine is. I saw, I saw you sipping on that, man. It's, it's, it's great. And hi from London. It's quite late here. So I was just literally signing off uh, and uh, it's great to be here. Uh, so I like a practical question, uh, as uh, Eric uh, pointed. So I've recently come across this interesting sort of um, stakeholder who seems to not be that interesting in, you know, what kind of data they are, or how, you know, how well these data are understood before we're making uh, 
sort of uh, steps towards getting something either on a dashboard or a model. I think we're well far from doing any any machine learning uh, yet. But essentially, which I understand from a business point of view, I you want to prototype uh, different views, different uh, or rapid prototype and test different things. How do you how do you balance that, or what stories or examples you had that where you know you have to tick the boxes? I've produced a dashboard. I've done some analysis. I know that fifty percent of my data is right because I've got like NA, NA, or you know these sort of things, and then I've got like three categories, and then I need to go back, extract some more data, label, train, and do all these things again. But at least I have a dashboard with some nice bars and graphs that you know we can iterate through. Uh, it's always a fine balance. I know there's not the right answer. I'd just be interested to hear some you know, stories and experience around that. I just give them the, the, the first simplest model I can get, and they're going to be like, dude, this model is shitty. And I'm like, well, if you give me more time, I can make you a better one, and here's how. And then I'll progress. And if they're pressuring me for time, then they're you know, incrementally going to be getting better and better. That's the way I would approach it. Uh, when, I'm, when people put a time box on me on my work, I just give them what – what I can in that period of time and then say, this is what I got so far. It looks like it's doing better or worse than random chance. And if it's doing better than random chance, that means we've got something here that we can work with. If you give me some more time to uncover more of the relationships in the data, maybe play around to see what other useful information I can extract. I can definitely build something more, uh, more accurate, for lack of a better term. And we can iterate towards that. Um, that's how I would approach it. How about, how about you folks out there? We'll start with Dave. Oh, impatient business partners. (laughs) (laughs) So typically what I do um, is I try to, I try to, I try to map the techniques that I know, the types of analyses that I can do, the things that I know how to do to the situation at hand. So for example, if I know that data is necessarily clean or it's not complete, or I just don't have time to do a full-blown model and go through the entire process of feature engineering and all that stuff, I won't use machine learning. I will use another technique. So for example, one of the easiest ones that um, I use quite a bit actually is a form of statistical process control called a process behavior chart. And that has very, very minimal data assumptions, can work on of relatively few data points over a time series and can produce some relatively interesting estimates that you can then use to communicate with the business. Or I might use something like market basket analysis or um, maybe even some just process mining, some very simple techniques. But typically what I do is I try to avoid using machine learning as much as possible, mainly because most of the time in my experience, business people aren't really ready for the time and the expense for a production solution with that. So I tend to focus on other things first. I just want to add to Dave's excellent point. If you do the kind of things that Dave encourages in his free courses and data visualization Those are the things we kind of need to do on the pathway to coming up with good models anyway. So why not show parts of the pipeline before you get to predictive analytics? And, uh, you know, if you're able to move beyond there, great. But I think, Evangelos, it's it's also an opportunity to do what Harpreet was saying. You know, do as much as you can. Show them shitty stuff. Sorry for my French along the way. But then just say, I've got to remind you all, garbage in, garbage out. You're wanting me to work with garbage data. And, you know, sometimes just cleaning the data will give you phenomenal results too. 
So I'd like to add something real quick. So for me on the business side, who likes to work with teams like you guys, uh, you will always hear business folks in a hurry because they're the ones taking risk. The issue is they're in a hurry. They have to make a decision quickly, but they can't put their finger on or, or on how to quantify that risk, which is why they like to come to you and put the pressure on. So sometimes what they're looking for is, how can I quantify that risk? And which is why I like to work with data scientists, which is because you guys have the ability to explore the possibilities and use and employ a risk-based approach to these possibilities to tell me if you choose X, this is what might happen. If you choose Y, this is what might happen. You give me garbage data, this is what will happen based on what I know, take the decision. So sometimes that's what we need in a hurry to make a split decision. So uh, that's what that's my two cents I wanted to add to this. Makigo? Yeah, and, and to add on to Greg's point, he always brings in like such really like fascinating insight about working with business partner teams because it ultimately it's still a relationship between data and business, right? I mean, um, and so what I've done in the past, um, well, okay, so to continue to add on that, right? Um, so one thing that has been this sort of uh, interesting uh, tension right, in a lot of the teams I worked in, is how do we sort of balance, like, the long-term needs versus, like, the short-term sort of, like, mission-critical, uh, like, firefights, right? Because a lot of times when my business partner was in a pinch, it was because their leadership was sort of pressuring down on them a little bit. Um, so one thing that does help, first off, is actually understanding, like, what is the thing that, like, what is the critical thing that they need? What is the critical answer um, is it directional or is it super precise? A lot of times if it's directional, my business partners have been willing to, um, I don't want to say compromise on quality, but they've been like, look, we'll like, you know, we will sort of caveat everything we give to our leadership. We'll let them know what the assumptions are. Um, and, and, and sometimes like I felt this pressure to like give them a really good answer to be really like outcome oriented, but sometimes that's not what they need. Sometimes they need something that's a little bit dirtier and rougher, like just to directionally understand like, okay, like do we or do we not pull back our suppliers in this area, right? Um, so that's one thing to consider is really talking with them and understanding what is the critical thing that they absolutely need in the moment. Um, and a lot of times when you have that conversation with them, it'll kind of bring up other things like, okay, we know this is something that will be important two quarters down, but it's not something we need to deliver on right now. So why don't we take these these parts of the requirements, put them in the backlog, and then when we have like that quarterly plan, quarterly or monthly planning talk, and we go through the backlog, let's bring that up at, that, at this point. But for this thing, um, let's just kind of deliver what they need. And I think it's always good to uh, not go model first. Because a lot of times too, also like the business partners, if you kind of talk with them, let them understand what's the cost in the trade-offs, a lot of them would probably go, yeah, we don't actually want to go model first. What they want is they're like, we want, uh, you know, salute outcomes, which don't have to necessarily even be positive, but we want outcomes, which we can understand and we can uh, communicate to our leadership who actually might even be less data-driven. A lot of times, like their leadership is can also be like less data driven on the business partner side your business partner who's working with you is probably the most like immediate person and so they can also serve as your advocate advocate because in a lot of companies even though data is still important um the business partner side is still the one that's kind of like driving the revenue you know and so you, it's it's one of these things where it's like you don't want to tell them no because they also have like outcomes that are sort of 
you know, uh, accountable to. Um, but you want to find the thing that will uh, they need, even if it's not the thing that they want. Let's hear from uh, Monica and Brandon on this point. Brandon, I see you're already unmuted, so go for it. Then after Brandon, we'll hear from Monica. Okay, yeah, I just want to add on um, Mihiko's point about cost, right? The, w- the way that I always work with my business partner is I give them the menu and I say, well, here's option A. And they know the benefits, right? Uh, but this is my estimate of the benefit, but I know the cost. This is the cost. Here's option B. You know, maybe it's better for longer term and here's these costs and here's option C. And I go and I say, you know, you can make the decision on which one you want, but I can provide all three of these. Um, I just have to be upfront about what things cost and then they can make the decision from there. Oh, the other thing I'll say is if you're trying to convince anybody, prototypes go a long way. Although uh, earlier I said that prototypes are crap because they're prototypes, but uh, prototypes are better than your slide or whatever is saying, I think this and I think that. Thank you very much, Brandon. Monica? Yeah, I mean, I completely agree with Makiko's points. Very spot on. You just want to really understand from the business partners what exactly they need to be able to provide them with that. And also to add on to be very transparent in what you can provide to them. So if the data is really crappy, you need to let them know that there's limitations that you can provide to them. And maybe that would help them on their side communicate that further up to say, well, we we may need to pivot and focus more on getting the data at a place of quality that we can then use it to make our decisions. Angelos, did that answer your question? Absolutely. Thank you, everyone. That was great. Right now, that's an excellent question, man. Uh, just want to shout out, Russell, I see you active in the chat, man. Thank you so much for your contributions in the chat. Um, let's open it up for one last question before we call it quits. There's a lot of people that uh, my camera off bias ignored. So Greg, Deepa, Juan, Melania, if any of you guys have questions, whoever unmutes themselves first gets the floor. I actually have a question. <laughs> oh, yeah, go for it, man. Go for it. Um, so I guess my question is so I- been a data scientist about a year. I'm finally starting to catch my groove where I can actually work pretty pretty independently. And now I'm having conversations with my manager, pretty planned to say like, hey, where do you want your career at this company to look like? And so a, a question I have is like, what's the next level for a data scientist when you don't want to be a manager? And I want to necessarily move away from the titles because at the start of the titles are kind of meaningless. Um, but more so, like, what does the responsibility and deliverables look like for someone who's trying to get to the next level as a data scientist? It's an interesting question. I know that there's companies like, for example, like Google, they have like two separate tracks, right? They've got tracks for people who want to become managers of people and they fill in those roles where you're now kind of orchestrating what is going to be happening. And then there's people who will stay on kind of the more technical route and they'll still be climbing up um, and taking on more responsibility, but more of like the technical aspect of stuff. Um, personally, I, d- I don't have much experience in, in what you're talking about here, but I'll open it up to see maybe if uh, if, if Brandon or Dave uh, or Tom or Mikiko, anybody has uh, insights here. I'd love to hear it. Yeah, so I can talk a little bit about it. Um, so when I was at Microsoft, I was a principal level IC for a number of years. And then I was also a manager at the director and senior director level. So A lot of it's going to depend, quite frankly, on the nature of the company that you work with. For example, big tech, I'll have a common title that you'll see in a big tech company is a distinguished engineer, which is an IC person that is like awesome sauce with extra awesome sauce on the side. So there's definitely ways to do that. And typically what happens there is it's all about 
two things. One, it's about technical virtuosity. You just have to be like unequivocally, objectively awesome <laughs> at data science if, if that's where you want to go. Um, you don't just have to be a researcher per se, but you have to be like really, really awesome with the technical chops. And then it becomes also about communication because to justify that level of salary as an IC, you have to be a force multiplier in some shape or form, whether that's in the marketing side, like uh, maybe like Ben Taylor, where you're kind of doing evangelism and you're a force multiplier that way. Or if you're an internal team, then you are mentoring other senior engineers, for example, like if I'm a senior engineer, who mentors me? Well, a distinguished engineer can do that sort of thing. So that's really, if you're not interested in going into management, it's really around this idea of like, how can I be a force multiplier? That's really what you want to think about as an IC. And technical virtuosity is going to be part of that. And communication is definitely going to be part of that. So whenever we see like the job title that says principal, that's kind of what that means. Then they're, they're on that manager level, but they're not actually directly in charge of like, people operations they're they're more in charge of helping grow and develop more junior talent in, in a technical capacity all right i'm guessing that's what that means all right uh any other um any other comments here from um brandon or makiko or tom or monica yeah when i have these conversations with, with my reports i i i always i let them know what i observe so i might have somebody who i've observed likes doing a lot of the research and doesn't like any of the the implementation or the productization, but really good at research. So for them, I think the research data scientists is, is what they're going to do. And then I've met people who come came in saying, yeah, I want to be a data scientist. But when I watch them work, I just see they're really more interested in engineering. And I, okay, then after a few years that I, and I say, you're, I think you're more of a, a data science engineer or maybe even a software engineer. And, you know, I kind of see if that is something that resonates with them. And if it is, then I'll lead them down that path. Uh, so I think it would start with interest and you can see if you don't see it, then somebody else, maybe your manager can see it, can help you uh, point that out to you as well. Right. Just to add on that. Um, that's it. Right did that uh, answer your question there, Mark? It did. Very insightful. Thank you, everyone. Awesome. Well, we'll go ahead and wrap it up, guys. Thank you so much for hanging out. Uh, if anybody did not get their questions answered, uh, I apologize. You guys had plenty of opportunities to just get yourself in the queue. So it's really on you. Uh, we will be back next week for the last office hour of the year uh, december 18th 4 30 p.m central time we'll be right back here uh, the last interview of the year was released just earlier this week with donald robertson check that interview out that was probably one of my favorite ones of the year um monday i've got an episode released a very special year end recap and a special treat for you guys so definitely tune into that um and look forward hey, camille to did a Guys, just so you know, Camille did a nice post about today's office hours. It's near the bottom of the chat. Might want to go support her there. Oh, definitely. Uh, Camille, do you have a question you won't be able to make it next week? Do you have a question that we should uh, we can help you with? Um, oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah, so this is my first time attending. This is really great. Um, I was struggling with some stuff in R this week, so I have an R question if you guys want to tackle that. But if we're also at the end, I'm happy to wait for another week. Dave, you can, guy Camille, you can send me a. Are we connected? Oh, you should send me, a request. Con- send me a connection request. I have a few left, so um, and I can help you out with any R questions. Okay, that's awesome. that's my that's my penance for what I said earlier. <laughs> Excellent. There you go, guys. Well, thank you again, everybody, for joining in. Look forward to seeing you next week. 
Until then, take care. Until then, remember, guys, you got one life on this planet. Why not try to do something big? Peace out.